So motivation is kind of the reason that we do anything, right? It's kind of the driving force behind why we make decisions. It's why we start anything. It's why we stay with anything. It's why some of us are actually able to complete anything that we do or sort of our motivation behind it. And unfortunately, if I asked you the question, what motivates you, we could probably come up with a lot of different reasons, right? What actually motivates you? And if, again, if we ask sort of our political views or we ask the politicians around us what motivates them, um, maybe the cynical observer uh, among us would say, well, we can sort of insert what motivates them, and it's usually money, right? It's sort of just trace the line of money. If any decision that's made politically, it sort of falls back to Money and, and while we think that we would like to say that we're all very different from politicians and that money, money is not the you know, primary motivator, if we're honest with ourselves, frequently money is a motivator for many of us. But beyond money, let's think about what actually motivates us to do things. What motivates you? Uh, maybe you're motivated by goals. You just sort of set goals and so you are all about goals, whether they're sort of altruistic goals or maybe they're more selfish goals just sort of that benefit you. Um, maybe uh, you, you really are motivated by encouragement, positive words from other people or positive behaviors or sort of uh, things that encourage you in different ways. Uh, maybe some of you are, are motivated, I should say, by challenge. That there's sort of this idea that there's a challenge out there that, that's really a difficult thing to accomplish or, or maybe people have told you that you'll never do this thing or it's never going to be able to be solved or whatever the problem might be. It could never be done. Uh, maybe some of you are, are motivated by opportunity, the opportunity that's presently in front of you, whatever that might be, or maybe a future opportunity of what potentially could happen and could be. Uh, maybe, again, reward is sort of your motivator. Something motivates you as, as rewarding, and, and maybe it goes beyond money. It might include money. It might include other prizes or other things, other intangible rewards, maybe sort of feeling healthier or less pain or you know, whatever the thing might be that's rewarding for you. But what motivates you? And then to join on to that, to kind of tie into the series, what motivates you politically? Because we probably have a list of different things that motivate us politically. There's different causes and different uh, agenda items that we would really get motivated about supporting politically. But what actually motivates you? What are those things that actually motivate you? Uh, more on that in a moment. We're continuing this series called Christians in Politics um, because obviously we have the midterm elections coming up in just a few weeks, just a couple of weeks actually, and so we're sort of sharing a guide for how Christians should navigate these sort of uncertain, and let's be honest, they're very strange times. <laughs> when, when elections come, it just gets really strange and weird, and, and there's just some things that happen. And so we're sharing a guide to how to approach politics, how to approach this, this situation when, um, when we've seen so many bad examples of it. We've seen people on the right, people on the left, specifically Christians on the right and on the left, handle the election cycle and handle this whole political process pretty poorly in, in a lot of ways. And so just to be clear, though, this is not going to be a voting guide. This is not sort of a, you vote yes on this, vote no on that, vote for this person, not, not that person. That's not what we're all about. This is really more of an idea of how do we engage with people who see the world very differently than us? Because there are people on the opposite political spectrum who would argue their points just as fervently and just as passionately as what you might. And so how do we sort of navigate those relationships? How do we navigate how to deal with those people? How do we navigate just being in relationship with people who see the world differently than we do? So on a foundational level, we said that Jesus demonstrated a posture, a tone, and approach for how to treat people. And we need to sort of follow that. If we are Jesus followers, that's what we need to actually follow. So in this series, we're focusing on that sort of idea of our posture, of how do we, how do we handle people, our tone, the words that we say, the, the approach that we go to, to, to dealing with somebody and, and to talking with people about any sort of issue, but specifically in this season, 
of politics. We're looking at that. So in week one, we talked about how the behavior of Christians, unfortunately, in recent elections, sort of confirmed what many people who are skeptical about Christians believe or skeptical about Jesus, that we really value this primary thing of winning. And then we also subsequently hate losing. And we really want to do everything we can to avoid losing. And so we said that Christians should have a different posture, a different tone, and a different approach to winning than politicians, that the natural political posture is to divide, whereas the Christian political posture should be to unite. The natural Christian political tone, or nat- natural political tone, rather, is about fear, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. The Christian political tone is overcoming faith, and the natural political approach is to win at all costs, right? To do whatever you can to win, whereas the Christian political approach should be to share Jesus at all costs. And when I say share Jesus, that also includes loving people, right? That's, a, that's probably the most obvious way to share Jesus. It's not necessarily beating people over the head, sharing Jesus with them and giving them tracts and Bible verses and all that. That's not necessarily what we're saying. We're saying loving people at all costs and representing Jesus to other people. And then last week we looked at a question that um, the people that were sort of getting ready for Jesus to come, they actually asked this question. I think we can also ask as we get ready for this election cycle, as we get ready for what's going to happen in our country, no matter who takes over Congress, no matter um, if there's even a tie and we have a split uh, Congress again, whatever the case is, we have this question that we can ask that can help us as we also get ready for this thing. That basically these people were saying, you know, we need to get ready for Jesus coming because John the Baptist said, yeah, you need to get ready for God. He's going to do something amazing, something new. And you need to be ready because if you aren't ready, you might miss the very action and the very movement of God in the world. And I think, if we're honest, too many times we've been distracted. We have so many noise things and so many things happening in our minds and we're just so busy that sometimes if we're not careful, we can miss the movement of God. And also specifically politically, we can miss the movement of God because we're so concerned about our politics. We're so concerned about whatever we're hearing politically. Uh, And so we said that this question was, God, what should I do? Not asking your politician, not asking your political party what should you do, but asking God to sort of start our day focused with that mindset, that posture of saying, God, what should I do? Because we said that what Jesus followers should do is very different than maybe what Republicans should do. It's very different maybe than what Democrats should do. It's maybe very different than what independents should do. But asking God, initiating this question with God helps us to see what we should do. And so we said that our main point was Christians have a different call to action than politicians. And we've all sort of gotten those response, those emails from politicians or, you know, somehow you get on this list and you're like, I'm not going to donate my money. I'm not going to give my time. I'm not going to put up a yard sign. And whatever those calls to action they put in those emails, we have a different call to action as Jesus followers. It's very different than, than politicians. And so we need to make sure that we understand that. So back to our opening question, what motivates you? And more specifically, what motivates you Politically, um, our political parties—they really do try to motivate us to to vote, um, to put out those yard signs, to to give our money, to encourage other people to vote. And uh, typically, our political parties—they try to motivate us mostly through fear, through anger, and hatred, right? And, and I'm saying this because, and I'm putting it on the screen um, partly as a way to encourage you to not just identify it in the other political party, because isn't it so easy to identify how they're p- appealing to fear, they're appealing to anger, they're appealing to hatred? But to sort of use this screen in front of you as a mirror to say, well, how is my political party? How are my views sometimes really only being motivated by fear, by anger, by hatred? Because if we're honest, both sides politically use the same tactics to get people to be motivated to vote and to engage in the political process. And interestingly, um, people on both sides of the political spectrum about eight years ago said that one of the, the greatest threats to our democracy, our country's government, 
is that people are apathetic. They're not motivated to get involved in the political process. And interestingly, it only took a few years later for that to completely change, partly for a lot of reasons that we're not going to go into today. But now people are very involved. But unfortunately, the source and sort of the center focus of why people are motivated to be involved in the political process right now, it goes back to these three things, doesn't it? It goes to fear, fear of what potentially could happen, anger at the people who have done something previously or are about to do something previously and take away something, hatred for the other side or hatred for another group of people that somehow is doing something bad. And we sort of have a, uh, these political groups have led us to be motivated to get involved because of these three things. And as we're going to see, I think today, Jesus followers, Christians, people who are trying to represent Jesus should not only be motivated by these things. Now, there might be a time and a place <laughs> for fear and anger, and I wouldn't probably say hatred, but, you know, anger at sort of the, the, the brokenness in the world you could probably justify. But this is not the primary. These should not be the primary motivators for anybody who is following Jesus. Because again, our posture, our tone and approach should be different than the world. And this is one of those ways. What, what is our motivation? What is the reason that we're really getting involved? And so we're going to look at a story that I've actually used before. We've read before. Many of you are going to be very familiar with the story that we're going to talk about today. The story of Peter being called um, by Jesus and Jesus's first interactions with Peter. But I want us to take a look at it a little bit differently today to look at what is the motivation that's sort of behind this? What is, what is the ways that Jesus actually addresses fear and anger and the hatred that might be the motivating factors of a lot of our political movement in our country. Maybe not us, but maybe us. And let's be honest with ourselves about how those things might actually be motivating us to get involved. So we're going to start reading in Luke chapter 4. If you want to follow along in the Bible app, you're welcome to do that. We have the notes and verses there, but we'll also have all of them on the screen as well. So uh, Luke chapter 4. Um, so this is sort of, uh, you know, Jesus' early part of his ministry. And when he was first starting off, many people hoped, actually, that Jesus was not just starting sort of a public ministry, but that he was starting this sort of campaign to, for a political career. They were hoping he was becoming a politician, a, a king. He was going to take over with, you know, political aspirations. And so many people sort of tried to direct him that way and wanted him to, to be that way. And they sort of viewed him as hopefully going to do that, those things. And so he started off, actually, in a way that maybe some politicians would start off. He started off giving speeches and teaching in front of people and, and talking about his platform, per se, and what he was coming to do. But then he brought a demon out of a man. And that sort of just kind of changed the direction. Like, what? This is going to be very different than a politician because... I don't know about you, but I haven't seen that happen from a politician, maybe. But um, so Jesus started eventually after that, he started developing relationships with people and started getting to know people a bit more and, and, and building these relationships. And so the one that we're going to look at today again is, is Luca is going to introduce us to um, Jesus' first interactions with Peter and how that whole relationship started off from the very beginning. And he's also called Simon Peter. So we're going to kind of use those terms interchangeably. And I might say Peter or Simon, but it's Simon Peter, the same guy, all the same guy, um, the fisherman. So verse 38 of chapter four says this. After leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon's house, where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. Please heal her, everyone begged. Verse 39, stand at her bedside, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. Uh, sorry, standing at her bedside, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she got up at once and prepared a meal for them. That basically, this is, again, Jesus' first interaction with Peter, Peter's first interaction with Jesus, and he heals. He performs this miracle in front of him, um, healing his mother-in-law, which is a great thing um, for Peter. That, I'm sure that improved so many things in his household that his mother-in-law was now feeling better. Um, and so, of course, you know, that miracle then spreads to the surrounding neighborhoods, and so things start happening. Verse 40, as the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick family members 
to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed every one. Now, this is, this is, Jesus basically spends a lot of the time, after healing Peter's mother-in-law, he spends a lot of time healing a lot of other people. And then at daybreak, he sort of decides that he needs to go and you know, get aside, get away from everybody, and sort of recuperate, and sort of reconnect with his Father in heaven, and spend time with his Father in heaven. Well, the people in the village, they don't realize where Jesus went, because he sort of went off away from the village. And so the people are like, well, where's Jesus? They go looking for him. They eventually find him, and they don't want him to leave. Because when Jesus is there, this has sort of attracted a lot of people. And I think people like then are very similar to people like today. And there was probably some pop-up shops that started forming and some things started happening because there's a large crowd of people around Jesus. And so they're sort of starting to benefit from this. Not only, you know, with the healings obviously happening and people getting better, but, you know, there's probably some economic things going on there or making some money selling some Jesus merchandise. I don't know what it was, but they're sort of, they're sort of benefiting from this. They don't want Jesus to leave in this moment. And so verse 43, he replied, though, Jesus replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too. Not just this place, but in other places as well. Because that is why I was sent. That Jesus basically says that he needs to go and tell other people about the, the reign of God, the authority of God coming on earth in a sort of a new way that God was going to establish his kingdom here on earth. And he needs to go and share this message with other people and with other towns also, not just with them. So a quick comment, and this is just an aside, but a quick comment about this kingdom idea as it also involves with our politics. Does your faith or your political views, your political uh, opinions, do they initially strike people as good news or do they strike people as something else? Maybe some bad news. Maybe it's good news for one group of people, but again, it's bad news for the other group of people. Uh, if people see the kingdom of God as something detrimental, if, if, if you talked about the kingdom of God in your community and with your neighbors and with your friends, would they see that as something detrimental, detrimental to society and to the neighborhood and to the area? And if so, does that potentially mean that maybe we're not communicating the same good news that Jesus was actually talking about? Or, you know, maybe throughout the last few decades or the last few years or whatever, that Christians haven't communicated this message of the kingdom of God as good news. Because Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, that it should be sort of seen eventually as good news and making a difference and making a good difference in the community. Because when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, it was good news for those far from God. It was seen as good news for, as for those that were far from God. So back into the story. Um, we're going to talk about that more in the next few weeks. But back to the story. Jesus is, is sort of heading to the uh, Sea of Galilee where a lot of his ministry took place. Uh, we jump into chapter 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. And because Luke writes this after the resurrection of Jesus, he sort of has already sort of equated Jesus' words with God's word. He sees that Jesus was God. And so he says basically that Jesus was preaching and he was sharing God's word because he was God. Okay, that's, that's a little, little important point there. Verse two, uh, he noticed two empty boats, Jesus noticed two empty boats at the water's edge for the fishermen had left them and were washing 
their nets. Now, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of details about this because in his day, everybody would have understood what was happening in this moment, sort of the cultural context of, of fishing. Um, but unfortunately, those of us in the 21st century, we don't necessarily know all that went into what was going on in this story. But basically, the fishermen fished at night, typically, because the waters were cooler and the fish would come up to the surface, and then you could catch them with nets. And so then in the morning, when the sun comes up, the water warms up and the fish go down deeper. And so the, the, the whole idea was that they were coming in in the morning coming in mid to late morning and you know bringing their boats in and then you know cleaning up their nets washing their nets getting them all ready for the next day the next night I should say and then they were probably trying to get ready to some sleep right because they'd been up all night um, doing this work and so in this instance it's about probably mid-morning early afternoon we're not exactly sure but um, th this is when the fishermen again had pulled their boats up shore they're starting to wash their nets they're starting to get ready for the next day and then verse 3 stepping into one of the boats Jesus asked Simon its owner to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. So again, remember, this is Simon Peter who just re recently before this, we don't know exactly how recently, but a little bit before this, had his mother-in-law healed um, of this fever thing that she had, and it was miraculous sort of healing right there. And then Jesus interacts with Peter again, Simon Peter again, and asks him to take his boat out a little bit from the water so that Jesus was in the boat, could go a little ways from the crowds and sort of create that amphitheater kind of thing of people on the shore, Jesus in the water, in the boat, out a little ways from that. And so basically, um, Peter sort of becomes, while being in the boat, he sort of becomes a captive audience, right? He kind of has to listen to Jesus. He doesn't really have a choice. He's sort of sitting next to Jesus. And, uh, you know, it sort of brings a whole new meaning to, to falling asleep in church, right? It's kind of hard to do that when you're right next to Jesus, though. I don't know if you've seen this. There's actually a photo of um, Billy Graham. I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it today. A photo of Billy Graham preaching, like, you know, the famous American preacher. He's preaching this amazing message. And then there's this guy in the back, you know, sitting in the chairs behind and just, he's asleep. You can just tell he's out cold and that's in front of Jesus. But Peter, in this moment, he, he really maybe can't fall asleep. He's right in the boat with Jesus. He's hearing Jesus talk. He's hearing Jesus preach. He's, he's listening to what he has to say. Verse 4, when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now most of us know what he's eventually going to tell Simon Peter to do, um, but in this moment, Jesus is going to ask something of Simon that is going to be a little bit surprising, I think, to Simon. And I think if you were in the moment with Simon Peter and hearing what Jesus is going to say, it's, it's a little bit surprising. It's a little bit disturbing. It's, it's also going to be maybe a little bit frustrating because you have to remember, Simon's probably a little bit tired. Not only has he worked the whole night and, and then brought his boats on shore and brought his, his nets on shore and cleaned them all up, and he's probably ready for bed, but now he's just listened to a whole sermon of Jesus's on top of that. And what Jesus is going to say next, it could very easily be like, well, I don't know why. And we're going to see that Simon does push back a little bit um, in what he's going to say. But what Jesus is going to ask him to do is to simply take a step to trust him. A, a step to trust him to do something that he's asking him to do. Continuing on verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Again, this isn't necessarily impossible. It's not crazy. Uh, it's completely doable. And yet, it's also unreasonable. <laughs> it's kind of a little bit costly for Simon Peter to do this because of what he's already done the night before and what he's already done this morning. And, and it's like, well, okay, but hold on, Jesus. Like, that's going to cost me something. It, it might cost Simon Peter the next day fishing because he's going to be too tired to actually, you know, be uh, attentive to what he needs to do fishing-wise. Um, he's also going to have to probably redo everything that he just did. You know, he's going to have to redo at least some of it, you know, cleaning up his nets and doing that again, rewashing them. And not only that, he's going to have to do it later, which is probably going to be a hotter part of the day, nonetheless. Um, but basically, this is also the point where, where I think Peter realizes, and somehow he has this vision, he has this ability to see that this is a point that could change 
his life. And he has no idea, obviously, he has no idea what's going to come after this. He's going to have no idea that later, like 2,000 years later, there's like a central city that has a, a basilica named after him and all these people know who Peter is. Like he has no idea that that, that magnitude of how his life is going to change. But in some way, I think Simon does have some indication, as we're going to see from his response, some indication that if he does what Jesus is asking him to do, or maybe if he doesn't do what Jesus is going to ask him to do, those things could drastically change the trajectory of his life. And so Simon Peter tries to answer sort of politely and with some respect. He says, verse 5, Master, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. Now, different cultures handle sort of conflict differently, right? Some cultures sort of are more upfront and just say, no, <laughs> not going to do that and don't, don't skirt around it. Other cultures try to like, you know, massage it a little bit and try to say some nice things or sort of, you know, the backhanded no or, you know, kind of the backdoor way of saying something they're not going to say. And Peter's maybe somewhere in the middle, but basically if we translate what he's going to say, I, I think he would say this is going to be a complete waste of time, <laughs> right? This is not going to be helpful. This is not going to be productive. We already went fishing when you're supposed to go fishing, and we didn't catch anything when you're supposed to go fishing. And so why do you think that we would catch anything if we go fishing when you're not supposed to catch anything? And so this is going to, again, cost Peter some time. It's going to cost Peter some energy. It's likely going to cost him some money if he has a crew that he's going to sort of take out with him or, or he's got to pay them in some, some sense. Um, it's also going to cost Peter probably socially because there's probably a crowd that at some level, some of the crowd that was just listening to Jesus is probably watching a little bit of what's happening. And so Simon Peter says again, Master, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. Now this is where the turning point is. But if you say so. And this is where I hope Peter's story sort of intersects with our story. Because in this moment, Simon Peter sort of has a crisis of motivation. What's going to be his motivation right in this moment with the next decision that he has to make? That there's going to be a cost to, again, doing what Jesus says or not doing what Jesus says. And so Peter's sort of wrestling with, well, what is going to motivate me? What's going to actually, you know, lead me further? Uh, maybe he's just recently thinking about how Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And he's sort of thinking about how amazing that was that the miracle happened in his house to a family member of his. Uh, maybe he's also thinking about this teaching that he just was sort of the captive audience to, sitting in the boat, hearing Jesus talk. Uh, maybe he's thinking about how he's never heard anyone. We've, we see, sort of see this in the gospel accounts of Jesus. No one's ever preached or taught with this level of authority, this, this level of certainty of what they're talking about. And so I want us to sort of repeat um, this verse together because I think it's good practice. Even if you don't want to believe it, that's okay. But I think it's sort of this good practice of sort of saying things that maybe um, we need to say a little bit more often to Jesus and, and sort of response to God. So I'd encourage us, whether you're online watching with us online or whether you're here in the room, let's all just say this verse together, okay? This, this part of the verse, ready? But if you say so. Okay, one more time. But if you say so. And Peter's response to Jesus saying, yeah, I know this is going to cost me because I don't understand. I, we already did this thing. We already tried to fish. It didn't work out. Why should we go do this right now and this time of day? But Peter, is, his motivation sort of switches to being focused on something outside of himself. He says, but if you say so. And this, this statement, I think, has so much incredible potential for all of us. More potential, you know, we look at Peter, who was just known by these few people in this small region of the world, because he said this statement, I think you could easily argue that the rest of his life, the reason we even know who Peter is, is because of this statement. The reason that billions of people around the world know who Peter is, is because 
of this statement. Now, that's not to say that you should be focused on celebrity and popularity. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say the magnitude of this statement, the potential in this statement, if we will say this regularly, has the potential to change your life just like it changed Peter's life. That this statement has the potential to completely change how you see other people, and also it changed how Peter, I think, eventually saw other people. That for some of us, maybe you're wrestling with a situation right now where this is sort of the focus. This is sort of the thing that that you might not even be so sure about this personal God and all these things, but you sort of have this feeling that you're supposed to do this one thing. Somehow you just sort of have this, you should do this. And you have a list of like 25 reasons why you shouldn't do this or why it's not reasonable or why it doesn't make sense or why it's not going to maybe help you in the long run. But you have this thing that you think you're supposed to do. And maybe God's sort of telling you, maybe your conscience is sort of being dinged a little bit. But you have this thing that you think you're supposed to do and you're sort of wrestling with this. And the thing is that you're sitting in a room, I think that if all of us had an opportunity to you know, get a microphone on and talk to each other, we would say, yeah, I can think back to that one moment where I thought I was supposed to do that certain thing. I felt like God was sort of leading me to do this thing. And I just think back, if I hadn't done that thing, I can't imagine where my life would be. Or, or maybe for some of you, you think, I, I did know that thing. I had that moment where I should have done that thing, and then I chose not to, and I just look back and have so much regret that I didn't follow what I thought God wanted me to do, that my motivation was somewhere else. It was about money. It was about careers, about advancement. Again, none of those things necessarily are bad, but listening to what God wants us to do and doing what he asks us to do, it it can be really incredibly life-transforming. And some of us know that. And so if you're struggling with that decision about, well, should I follow that? I don't necessarily know. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem like it's the way the rest of the world lives their life. I would encourage you that that could be the, the moment that God uses to change your life. And so if you will take that moment to say yes to Jesus, just like Peter does here, and give him a chance to trust him, to put a little bit of trust in him initially, God could do something amazing with your life from there. He continues on, he says, but if you say so, Peter says, I'll let down the nets again. And so Simon Peter, he doesn't necessarily know all that's at, t- all that's at stake, but he knows how to take this next step of what Jesus asked him to do. And interestingly, Jesus didn't ask him to take a huge, amazing step of faith. He just simply said, I want you to take this step. Now, obviously, if, if you know, Jesus started off by saying, well, Peter, I want you to come follow me, but if you're going to come follow me, you're going to have to die. Initially, if that's what P- Jesus said, well, I don't know, you know, maybe Peter doesn't take that huge, big step, Right. But the first step that Jesus asked Peter to take is this small step to let your nets down, to go out fishing with me again at a different time. And I think sometimes Jesus does the same thing for us. He wants you to take this small step. It's, it might seem big at the time, but it's a small step in the, in, the, in the scheme of the bigger story of what God might want to do through you. And so like Simon Peter, we have the ability to take whatever the step is, to look at the motivation of our lives and to say, okay, I'm going to follow what Jesus wants me to do as my motivating uh, motivating factor in my life. Continue on verse six. Uh, I'm going to read this from the NIV real quick, but I think it helps us. When they had done so. So, so Peter actually did this. Again, he probably had a crew with him. He had some sort of fishing crew with him. And they, when they had actually done this, so they actually followed and took the step that Jesus wanted them to do. And again, Jesus didn't necessarily just say, well, I want you to believe in me. That wasn't it. That was part of it, right? That was sort of built into the action. But Jesus wants them to actually take a step, to actually take a step of action And so when they had actually done so, verse 6 again, at this time their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. Verse 7, a shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish, excuse me, and on the verge of sinking. 
Now, a, a quick question about this story that's kind of important, but why, why do you think Jesus would, would do this miracle in this moment? Because it's so easy to see the, the previous miracle, right? Like healing somebody, that has obvious you know, importance, right? Because it's actually helping a person specifically, you know, dealing with some sort of problem. But why this miracle? And why the miracle involving nature now? Because it's not just people. This is actually like nature. Like somehow he's brought these fish at this moment when they're not supposed to be there. And they're just so many fish that it's just filling their boats. And I think this points to something that we need to make sure we understand about Jesus. That, that the point of Jesus' ministry was not just what he taught. He was a great teacher. But he was not only a great teacher. But it was also about who he claimed to be. That he claimed to be from God. That he claimed to be the Son of God. And that's an important point because Jesus actually was God. He was, he's giving us the direction. He's, he's the person that we can follow because he actually was God. And so he had authority over nature. He wasn't, again, just simply a teacher. He was uh, something more than that. And so verse 8, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he exclaimed, we're rich, which is not really what he said, okay? What he actually said was, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh Lord, Please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. That basically Simon Peter is saying something that many of us have probably said to somebody else at some point. Like, if you only knew the person that I am, if you only knew the person that I am on the inside and, you know, the things that I do when no one's looking, like, he sort of knew that there was something broken about him. And yet... Peter says this to Jesus, and Jesus does know who he is, right? It's not if only you knew. Well, Jesus does know who Peter is. And, and maybe Simon Peter says this because he sort of assumed that God distances himself from those who are hurting and broken and those who are sinful. And it would have been reasonable for Peter to assume that, to come to that conclusion, because the religious leaders of the day, that's sort of what they taught, that God distanced himself from sinners and people like Peter, because those same religious leaders did the same thing. Who They sort of represented God in some ways, and they would distance themselves from other sinners like Peter. And again, this is why maybe Luke includes this in the story, in his account, this sort of strange story that, to be honest, let's, let's be honest, it makes it a little bit harder to believe in Jesus because this miracle thing happens, and yet it's sort of, again, pointing to the fact that we need to know that, that not only does God not distance himself from us, God actually comes close to us. God actually came close to us and came near to us through Jesus. He came so near that he went fishing with his buddies, right? I don't know how more close you can get as far as a, a, a mostly a guy perspective, but ladies, you might be liking fishing too. That's a pretty close experience when you're fishing with your buddies. God came so near that he came to Matthew, who nobody liked, and didn't just say, like, I'm going to go do something with you. I want to go into your house. And he said the same thing to Zacchaeus, who, who lived in a ceremonially unclean house, according to the religious standards. And he said, I want to go do this intimate thing of having a meal with you in your house. I want to be near to you. And in some ways, God has come so close to people that some of us and, and the people in the day, they didn't even realize it was Jesus. They, they, they couldn't see it because he was so close to them. And when I think of that, I can't help but think of, um, unfortunately, guys, typically, um, when we go look in the refrigerator, <laughs> sometimes we can't see the things because it's right there. And I don't know how many times I've heard um, other parents talk about this. You have to tell your son sometimes to take a step back from the refrigerator so you can actually see the thing that you're wanting to get because you just can't see it. It's so close to you. And in some ways, that's the same thing that God did. God came so close to us that so many people have missed it sometimes. Because God actually wants to be close to those who are hurting and broken and sinful. He's not trying to distance himself from them. And we know our sinfulness, right? We know the things in our life that we're not measuring up to our own standards, let alone God's standard. 
And God has not come to distance himself from us. He's come to be close to us. And unfortunately, we'll hit on this in just a second, unfortunately, our political views and our political people and our political parties don't necessarily see the same thing, do they? They, they want us to distance ourselves from anybody who sees the world differently than we do. And yet Christians who are in politics have said the same things and saying we need to be away from those people, whoever those other people are. And both sides have done this and tried to distance themselves and say that, you know, that's not the way God would do it. And, and maybe it's not. But God did not come to distance himself from others. God has come to be near others. So Peter says, oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the other men in his party, the other crew members with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. But Jesus replied to Simon Peter. Again, motivation here. Remember, the motivations we talked about, fear, anger, hatred. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. That Jesus was constantly telling his followers, don't be afraid, right? This is just one of the first instances, but he was saying it all the time. He was talking to them, don't let fear be the motivating factor for the reason that you make decisions in your life or to keep you from doing things that you should be doing. And in this moment, Jesus is telling Peter to not be motivated by fear, but rather, he says, to be concerned about others. That basically he's going to go and search for other people, specifically people who are hurting and broken, who are far from God. Continuing in verse 11, and as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, we might think like, well, I would be more motivated to follow Jesus if something like that happened in my life. If I saw the miracle of my mother-in-law being healed, if I saw the miracle of nature and all, you know, Jesus did this amazing miracle with nature. If I experienced what Peter experienced, then maybe I would be a little bit more motivated to follow Jesus as well. And yet, Luke and Peter would tell us, well, hold on. <laughs> Actually, Jesus has done something even more for all of us as well as what he did for Peter in this moment. That Peter actually wrote a letter that survived antiquity and survived all the things happening in history, and we still have it. And he sort of looked back on the crucifixion of Jesus, and he tells us that, that our motivation to follow Jesus is sort of based on something very important. He says this in verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Talking about Jesus, right? Again, this is after the resurrection and the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and this is a big deal for Peter specifically, but I think it's a big deal for all of us because how many of us want to retaliate, right? Like it's not a hard thing to want to retaliate against somebody who wrongs you or throws insults at you. And yet, Peter is the specific example here. Peter's writing this. He retaliated a lot, right? We have a lot of moments just even in that last few hours of Jesus' life where, where Peter retaliated against somebody uh, when they're insults and doing something to Jesus. He even thought he was doing something to protect Jesus, right? And yet, later on, he realizes when they hurled their insults at Jesus, Jesus did not retaliate. Continues on. Um, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Now, none of us have, um, I don't think, seen or heard a crucifixion, but crucifixion was not just suffering, right? It was just horror and terror and, and pain and agony, excruciating pain and agony. And, and everyone that's being crucified is probably calling for their mothers, asking for help, calling out for God, what, you know, going through incredible pain. And yet in this moment, Jesus was not just suffering. He, he was suffering immensely, but he didn't make any threats, right? It'd be one thing to sort of make a threat from a cross because what are you really going to do? But Jesus, of all people, while he's suffering, he could have made a threat. He could have, you know, said I was gonna, he was going to do something to the people that were hurting him because he had the power to fulfill it, but he didn't actually 
do that. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That the outcome of the situation that Jesus was in, he was trusting his heavenly father for no matter what. And he was facing death, right? He was facing imminent death in that moment. He was leaving the outcome up to God. And if Jesus could trust his heavenly father with the outcome of his life and the crucifixion that he was enduring, then I think we can trust the outcome of the elections to God. And I know that there's so much to be fearful of, right? I know there's all the things. We could all probably take a moment and share the thing that we're fearful of most about this election cycle and what could happen. And mostly we'd probably be reiterating talking points from our political party, but we, would, we could share some justified things that maybe we're really afraid of. And yet, we're reminded that we don't need to be motivated by fear, that we have something bigger at hand. Because if Jesus were sort of like our political situation right now and he was taking his cues from the political parties, then I think Jesus' outcome might have been very different, right? It might have led him to a different outcome um, doing that. And if we only take our cues from the political parties and the political talking points and the political speech and stuff that we hear around us all the time, then maybe it will lead us to a different outcome as well that we don't necessarily want and we're not actually following and being motivated by Jesus in that moment. So when we get to the heart of it, when it comes to this idea of Christians and politics, I think Christians have a different motivation than politicians. And hopefully it's not that hard to see. If we threw up that list again of that, you know, anger and fear and, and um, hatred, you know, that's not a very common, you know, that's not a very list that represents Jesus. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to realize that, right? And yet in those moments when we have those emotions or we're, we're being tempted to, to be motivated by those things and, and to, to take action because of those things, it can be really easy to just jump on the boat and just follow along with the, the, the people around us and follow along with the, the, the motivations of other people around us. And yet, Christians should have a different motivation than politicians, that we shouldn't be motivated by anger or hatred towards any group of people. We aren't motivated by distancing ourselves from sinful people or distancing ourselves from anyone. We should be motivated to go towards other people because that's what God did. That's what Jesus came to do and demonstrate for us. We aren't motivated by fear of what another person could do, of what a political cycle could do, of, of what could happen if this thing happens. We aren't even motivated by fear of our own sinfulness, of what we could do in that, in that moment. We should be motivated by relationships and by connecting with other people. That the actions of, of Christians, unfortunately, many times have distanced, distanced ourselves from certain people because our political party told us to do that. It wasn't because of what Jesus told us to do. And yet we see from Peter that we should do something a little bit differently. We should say something a little bit differently. But if you say so, remember, he's talking to Jesus. He's addressing Jesus. He's saying, but if you say so, I'll do something very different than my political party. If you say so, I'll donate my money in a very different way than supporting some candidate. If you say so, I'll live a different way than what my party wants to do. I might even go on to the other party and support their thing. I might even jump side. I'll do what you say so, Jesus, because I'm following you. I'm taking my motivation from you, Jesus, not from fear not from anger, not from hatred of anybody else. That Christians should take our cues, we should take our cues from Jesus, not from politicians. And we should follow Peter's, Peter's situation. That yeah, it might cost us. Yeah, people might look at us a little funny. People from our own party might look at us a little funny because we're not just following the party line and everything. It, it might not make any sense. I, I might never be able to explain this to my friends. I might not be able to justify it in some way. But if you say so, Jesus, but if you say so, I will follow what you want me to do. 
And if we do that, again, we have the opportunity, the potential to do something so much bigger than just win an election, so much bigger than just winning a side of Congress or you know, having more seats than the other party. Peter sort of tells us what we could be a part of, of sharing the good news of Jesus. He says this in the, the next verse of his letter. He says, he personally, Jesus, carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin. This is the good news that we get to share something so much more powerful than, than whatever political thing might be. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. And by his wounds, we are healed. There's things that need to be done politically. There's ways that politics can help heal things. I'm not saying there's not. But we need to take our primary motivation from Jesus and following what he says before we take the motivation of whatever our politician or our political party is trying to motivate us to take action. We take action because Jesus took action. We take action because we're following after him and because he said so.